The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from my home in the wilds of Connecticut, having flown back from Zurich a week ago. I am happily joined by Jen Saba and Anna Szymanski in New Jersey and Brooklyn. We have the perfect tri-state trinity here, don't we? New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. You're back. You're back yes. in the tri-state. I am. I am. Well, look, I thought we'd discuss a few stories that you guys worked on this week that I think kind of sum up the, the state of corporate deal-making in the age of COVID-19. After that, we'll hand over the podcast to Jeff Goldfarb, our Asia editor, to chew over the bailout of Hong Kong's de facto national carrier, Cathay Pacific. But first, Jen, let's talk a bit, let's talk takeout. Um, You wrote a piece uh, on Wednesday about Grubhub, uh, the US takeout company or delivery, food delivery company, agreeing to be acquired by JustEatTakeaway.com, kind of a mouthful, that name. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And it's a $7.3 billion deal, which is interesting in lots of ways. I mean, it's sort of a perfect encapsulation of of a COVID-19 type deal, but it's also, I mean, it's relatively large. You've got cross-border, which we haven't seen a whole lot of. It says something, I'm sure, about antitrust, and it also tells us a bit about their competitors. Why don't you unpack the big takeaway deal. What's our yeah, takeaway? I mean, yeah, there, there's a there's a lot going on. So just to kind of set the the stage here, um, Grubhub, which is you know a huge uh, uh, food delivery service here in the United States, they had been uh, reportedly in talks to merge with Uber, and this was back in May. And the rationale would be. Um, Uber Eats needs some help. They need to boost their business. This would uh, this would be a complementary fit with them, and uh, so they were kind of trying to hash through those terms. However, there was a huge, huge regulatory overhang because it's clear that Washington would definitely look at a deal like this. So um, Grubhub was out shopping itself around, and Just Eat Takeaway decided to swoop in and uh, basically take a bite. They uh, definitely need a better name. Grubhub. They, they can't be like do. Grubhub post or, you know, takeaway. I mean, just too much. It should be just called like food. <laughs> right. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling food. Um, so the, the reason why that name is such a mouthful is because they just got done doing a huge merger. So, uh, you know, Just Eat, let's just call it that for the moment, is just on this binge, basically, of buying uh, food delivery services. And, you know, if this deal goes through, this will make it the largest food delivery service outside of China. If deal goes through, what what uh, what could what could throw it off? What could okay. happen? Yeah. Well, whereas a combination with Uber, would, the, the big overhang was regulators. The, 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 the overhang with Just Eat Takeaway take is that it doesn't look like shareholders are terribly happy about this. Um, and my colleague Karen Kwok is writing that, you know, the shares are down like 13 percent. There are very few synergies to be had by combining these two companies. Um, and Just Eat is now entering a really, really competitive market in the United States. And it's going to be brutal, at least in the short term, uh, competing with Uber Eats and DoorDash. Yeah, Anna, what was your take on that? No, I was just going to say that was what kind of jumped out at me was the synergy thing of like how this really makes sense, because Uber Eats and 
Grubhub. That made sense. I mean, I understand the regulatory issues. It probably never would have gone through, but at least you can understand in this incredibly competitive market, having a much larger player that works. When you're talking about a European and a US, I'm not really sure what the real benefit is there. Yeah, what is, what is, what is Uber's response going to be? Assuming they can't, I mean, the deal was a bit too much to buy uh, Grubhub. Do they have alternatives that would help well, them? Well, I mean, it, it definitely puts them on their back foot, right? Because Uber Eats is, is, is a keystone to the business right now. And so, I mean, I guess a couple of different things could happen. I mean, they could certainly come back and, and try and bid for Grubhub. Um, they could also look at DoorDash. I mean, if that's, you know, that could be an option as well. Um, or they could do nothing. Um, you know, maybe the regu the regulatory issues are, are so um, onerous that it just, it's going to be a, a kind of a difficult haul no matter what. Is it that difficult a business? I mean, it's food delivery. I mean, if, is it, is it, do you, is, is the issue that you end up tying up and doing exclusive deals with with restaurants and providers? Is that is that why it becomes an antitrust problem? Well, I think what's happening is that a lot of restaurants have been griping about uh, onerous fees charged by these food delivery services. And a lot of them have uh, concentrated market power depending on the city. So Grubhub, for example, is the largest food delivery service in New York City. So you basically have to do business with them. So a lot of cities have started to cap the commission rates. I mean, they're temporary, but it kind of gives you a sense of where this is going. So look, who knows what Washington's gonna do? Washington has kind of been all over the map. Regula regulators have been, you know, it, it depends on what the deal is. So yes, it could it could pass, but the, but you know that they're gonna look at this. Yeah, have, have you, uh, what's the, is Grubhub the uh, provider in Brooklyn, Anna? What are you? Have you ever it's, used these guys? Well, so Seamless, oh, Seamless and Grubhub are the same. Right. Oh, so, right. Okay. Yeah. But yes, I uh, I use Seamless quite a bit. <laughs> and it, what about Montclair, New Jersey? Um, I think maybe DoorDash. I don't really use them. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say. Yeah. All my I, friends in New Jersey say it's DoorDash. That, that, I think it's DoorDash. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So let's talk about malls. Speaking of New Jersey, um, so you have this big deal that, uh, that these two, basically two, the two of the of the largest operators of shopping malls, had planned to merge in February. I guess they announced this. Yeah, Simon. Yeah. Uh, so unpick that one. Like the, the timing on this was is kind of interesting. Yeah. So they are. Um not just mall operators, they operate kind of high-end malls, which is sort of an important thing to note here because everybody thinks about malls as like they're they're circling the drain. And that's true, but there are different classes of them depending on where they're located. So, so short hills or paramus for and short yes, and this is part of this deal. <laughs> <laughs> short Hills Mall. Um so Simon Property has been wanting to buy Taubman for a long time, which is also very interesting. And they finally got them and it's controlled by the Taubman family. And so now they are effectively, um, I'm gonna channel Lauren Silva Laughlin, they have initiated their mat clause and they are wanting to get out of this deal. The Taubman did. The, no, the Simon, the Simon, okay, the, Simon the buyer, Property, right. the buyer. The buyer, um, the buyer did. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's very interesting. They cited COVID 
as the main reason. One is that the pandemic has hurt Taubman malls um, more than other malls. That's what they're claiming. And they're also claiming that Taubman um, didn't do enough to uh, cut costs and conserve cash. So they're basically arguing in a court that they need to get out of this. Huh. I mean, it's a bit February they announced this deal, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like that. I mean, it, even then you could see what was on the horizon to some degree, no? Yes, clearly. Um, and they have malls, both of them, all over the world, right, including Asia. So you could. So, so you yeah, because there you coming. would have seen it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Anna, how do you you've written about force majeure and uh, and about Max and things. How do you see this one panning out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, from what I've seen, it doesn't like some of the other issues you've had, you actually specifically had pandemics listed as, you right. know, as, as and, and in this case, my understanding is that was not the case, which is kind of interesting going back to the idea that this was done in February and people kind of didn't <laughs> didn't think through that. So it seems as though it's more likely that they'll be able to get out of the deal. I mean, if you had like that L Brands deal, where they actually literally had pandemics listed. What was that but deal? That was the Victoria's Secret? That was the Victoria's Secret deal, exactly. It was a private equity firm in Victoria's Secret. And they were able to get out basically because it was a poorly worded MAT clause. <laughs> like they listed they listed pandemics in one sentence, but they didn't list it in another. So they were able to kind of use that. I, I give the lawyers credit for that. Um, not the lawyers who wrote it, but the lawyers who wrote it. <laughs> but it, you know, it seems to me that in this case, it seems as though they'll probably be able to break the deal. And, and, you know, I guess that's interesting to see what that, what, you know, whether this is just an issue of this specific deal or whether they're also just saying, look, we think even high-end malls are really going to be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this both these deals are quite emblematic of, I mean, they're interesting in that, you know, the book we just did, one of the, the, the conclusions that I think you guys all came to in all these 44 stories you wrote was that all of what will change is actually just everything you expected will just happen quicker, right? And so if I think about the decline of the shopping mall or the the shift to digitalization and online shopping and that kind of thing, that was already a trend. I, you have to, I mean, one has to assume that, that that only, this is only hastened by the pandemic, right, Jen? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, certainly malls are in the crosshairs of that. And um, one thing that it has done is train people to buy things online. And if you weren't doing it before, you certainly were, were doing it now and probably going to continue to do it. Um, and a lot of retailers have cited that uh, curbside pickup may be here to stay. And um, so that's interesting. So you don't need as big of a footprint if that's the case. We had, uh, we did this event or this virtual newsmaker with Bruce Flatt of Brookfield, which owns Brookfield Properties, which is a huge uh, mall owner. And I asked him this question and he was saying a lot of the malls are just, he, you know, of course he's, he's talking his book. He doesn't want, he, he thinks malls are, are going to be great investment and not just, but it, but it sounded to me like the vision of the mall is going to change quite dramatically. So this curbside, this idea that you go and you can touch, you have a tangible experience with shopping, but you still order things online, you pick them up there and that they become not quite um, warehouses or by any stretch, but delivery fulfillment becomes as much a part of, or pickup, I should say, becomes part of the mall. He also suggested that, I think, I, I, I sense that there's a lot of malls that are just, you look, they're in great places, they're in great you know locations, but that doesn't mean that necessarily there'll, there'll be a mall on that location uh, yeah. five, 10 years hence. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like the last mile, I think, is, is probably what he's what he's talking yeah. about, which yeah. which is good. You know, it, it helps save on costs and shipping costs, et cetera. Right. And then I guess then the other so the others, the others deal that you wrote about the the takeaway deal, it's sort of on the other hand, that is the move towards digital digitalization has has actually benefited these companies, pushing them together. But also the fact that you have a 7.3 billion deal. I mean, that was the I think the value of the deal before, of course, the, the buyer's stock, as you mentioned, um, tumbled something like 10, 13 percent on yeah. Thursday. But you know, look at what was the transaction size for Taubman and Simon? I, I think it was around three billion in change, I think, yeah. somewhere in there. I'm guessing there's an enterprise value there too that's larger, yeah, but I right. mean, it, it's just an interesting point when you look at the, the different equity, uh, the capitalizations here. Okay, so um, also it's baseball season. Maybe. Uh, well, it should be baseball season. <laughs> yeah, let's say. see if the union and the league can come to a deal, then it'll be baseball season. So you've been writing about, you're looking at that issue and that's still unresolved, but you, yeah. The other, the other sort of interesting uh, story that we wrote about this week was the piece that you did on two of private equity's biggest wigs, uh, co-founder of Apollo and one of the top executives at Blackstone, who have teamed up in the past and have a, their own company owning the couple of base. Well, sorry, maybe you can explain the story here. Yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, you have Josh Harris, co-founder of Apollo, and you have David Blitzer of Blackstone. And they have Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, which already owns a number of properties, the New Jersey Devils and the uh, Philadelphia 76ers, among other things. And so the big news this week was that perhaps they may be exploring a deal to buy the Mets. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Number New one, York's uh, second baseball team, we should yes, say to our yes. listeners who may not be. <laughs> familiar second baseball team yes so you know it, it's interesting both in that you know franchises like the Mets just don't come up to be purchased that often so that's one issue why this is really big and why you in the last you know few months actually had a number of really big names looking to buy the Mets you obviously had Stevie Cohen in a deal that broke down in February you've had um A-Rod and Jennifer Lopez looking at buying it you know and and now you have these these private equity titans and you know, I think the thing that I wrote about and that jumped out when we were first looking at it was the fact that these guys own the Philadelphia 76ers and they're looking to buy the Mets. Now, people outside of sports fandom might be like, one of these is a basketball team. Right, I mean, one basketball a team and a baseball team, two different cities, what's the big whoop? Yes, you can't try. Ha-ha. However, if you know baseball, you know that one of the biggest rivalries is between the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets. This is a classic notorious rivalry and in a market like philadelphia it's a relatively small sports market if you're a fan of the basketball team you are almost certainly a fan of the baseball team and the hockey team and the football team like that you know, that's kind of how that works so if you if you are a 76ers fan you are pretty surely a phillies fan so the idea that you know you are a 76ers fan you're a phillies fan and then that owner is also going to own your like biggest enemy, the Mets. You know, as a sports fan, that's going to seem like a conflict of interest. You're, you're not really going to necessarily want to see that kind of um, sharing that ownership. Well, David and, Blitzer and Josh Harris, Apollo and Blackstone, they know a thing or two about conflicts of interest. 
Yes, I mean, private equity, obviously, you know, you're very often in potentially even you know, different parts of the cap structure of the same company. You can sometimes it appears that they're almost on, you know, different sides of the same deal. You have interest between portfolio companies and your clients. You know, this is something they're always navigating. But, you know, that that may be child's play compared to Philadelphia sports fans. Yeah, they get I mean, they're like brawls and stuff, you know, like this like, stuff. <laughs> This is they, no this they, is no joke. The Eagles fans notoriously booed Santa Claus. This is one of the best the best stories about Philadelphia sports is the booing of Santa Claus and throwing snowballs at him. Um so you know so you could you you know you may literally have fans that if this were to come to pass, obviously still very early stages now, very preliminary, but if it did come to pass, who might actually push back on this? And you know, something they know, Jen, you kind of wrote about in a separate vein in terms of people being able to use social media to kind of get their voices across and, you know, push for things. You no, know, that could be a case here. You know, example I kind of also noted in that article was how in March the Harris Blitzer was going to cut employee salaries at a number of these franchises. And people got really angry and they responded and very quickly Harris Blitzer reversed course, donated a lot of money. So yeah, that suggests that this this may be a conflict of interest that's uh, too far. Right. That, well, interesting. I think the deal is still, or the, the discussions are still quite preliminary. And Very like the, the Stevie Cohen, uh, the hedge fund managers, uh, or even the previous hedge fund manager um, who was looking at it, David Einhorn, the Mets. I mean, it's sort of like one of these things. You know, lots of people, lots of rich folks want to finance. Folks <laughs> well, want to own the Mets, but. And that goes back to the idea just that you don't have a franchise like this that comes up to be purchased that often. Yeah. So it's, it's not surprising that when it does, you're going to have every, you know, big sports fan come out of the woodwork and want to buy this thing, even though it loses money. I mean, right. that's the thing with baseball, going back to what we said at the beginning, you know, the current negotiations is that baseball is a sport that's declining in popularity, you know. And so right now, if you I think they'll probably come to a deal to actually start the season. But, you know, if this goes on and they potentially have a much shorter season, you know, that's one more kind of knock on baseball that can kind of potentially decrease the value of this thing that people want to spend billions of dollars on. People, and I always find that the thing about baseball is the experience, actually. Yes. Going to the ballpark, you know, drinking the beer, the $12 Miller Lights or whatever it is, and the hot, you know, it's the experience as much as anything else. Hard one for TV, I find. Definitely. No, I mean, like growing up, going to like Tigers games in like old Tiger Stadium, like that was a lot Lucky of fun, you. you know, like that. that um, yeah. And so, I mean, having said that, though, baseball was actually one of the first sports well, for a number of reasons that was on television. And it's one of the easiest sports to watch on television. It's actually easier to see the right. sport on television. Than it is. It's but not like watching are, a hockey puck. Exactly. But, you know, baseball, unlike a lot of the other leagues, makes a lot of its money from people going to the games. Right, right. So, so, so what does this mean in New Jersey? Like, are you torn between the, uh, Jen, are you Philadelphia sports <laughs> fans or are you New York sports fans? I don't even know. Well, first of all, I'm neither. <laughs> oh, right, you're Texas. <laughs> no, but my my husband and son are huge Phillies fans. And you're right, Anna, Phillies, 76ers, and the Eagles. So this will be interesting to see. We did go to a, a Mets game last summer, and my son wore his Phillies hat, and I was a little afraid for him. <laughs> no, well, I mean, sports rivalries are no joke. <laughs> yeah, no joke. All right. Well, good. That's uh, that's good, guys. I think we've uh, covered the big stories of the week. 
Um, well, well, Rob, wait a minute, though, because I just want to ask you something. Speaking of transatlantic, how was your flight back to Connecticut yeah, from Switzerland? I, I want to know. That was pretty fascinating. Um, there were so I, I flew a Swiss Air jet uh, to JFK from Zurich a week ago. And there, first of all, the airport in Zurich was, which is always a kind of very efficient airport. It is Switzerland, but it was absolutely, there was nobody, there's nobody around it. You zip through security. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty easy. And then the flight, an A330 Airbus with 250 seats, there were 11 passengers. So that was, that was, we were, we had the place to ourselves. I think one person was in first class, nobody in business, and then the rest of us, 10 of us in the, um, and that included, by the way, a newborn. So it was, yeah. it, which of course they sat the newborn and the family right behind me. I'm like, guys, you know, you've got the whole 150 Really? Is that, really? Is that how they, that's incredible. They didn't spread, space people out? I, I mean, I was sort of surprised they didn't, but, um, but it wasn't like a problem to go and get your own, you know, take up yeah. an entire row to yourself. And they, they, you know, the the stewards all wore masks and gloves. There was actually like a short sort of food. They brought some food around and that kind of thing. So it wasn't completely. Um, um, there was no. It wasn't like there was no service. Getting to JFK was fascinating. You have to go through certain protocols. You have to fill out a form that tells them where they can, how they can reach you. So it's a contact tracing um, exercise. Uh, they when you disembark from the plane. There's a the, you, the guy takes a look at your form to make sure they can read all the information and then passes you to a colleague who uh, checks your temperature mm. to make sure you don't have a fever. And then they give you a little thing from the CDC that tells you, I don't know, what to do if you if you get sick or, or come down with COVID-19. And then you have the entire JFK terminal to yourself. So, you know, you walk through, there's no, no queue whatsoever uh, to get through customs. And then, or passport control, and the, the most two of the most amazing things. It took ten minutes for my bags to come at JFK. I mean, I don't know if you you ever use bags, you know, drop bags at JFK. Usually, it takes a lot longer than that, like yeah. an hour. And then driving up through the Van Wyck Expressway, which is usually a, a, a parking lot, was uh, empty, it was virtually empty. So it was actually a pretty easy travel experience uh, overall. And the flight was relatively inexpensive, but mm -hmm. I did talk to the Swiss Air, one of the guys on board, one of the stewards, who said, "This is just for flights to the states, which they had only they only started the JFK flights recently. They had, they had been keeping, I think, three a week to Newark um, during the pandemic." Uh, he said flights to Berlin from Zurich or to London or Porto in Portugal were packed. So I think it's really it has a lot to do with you know there basically are restrictions on the ability to move. If, you don't, if you're not a U.S. citizen, you're not getting into the U.S., basically. And if you don't have the right to work in Switzerland, which I do, then you don't get back into Switzerland. So that, so I think that is as much. And also the fact that the U.S. seems to be a little bit less in, under control when it comes to the, the virus. And of course, some of the unrest that you were seeing, I'm sure that had something to do with it as well. Um, but I'll let you know in two weeks when I hit back. Thanks, Rob. 
The uh, steady cascade of airline bailouts made its way to Hong Kong this week. Uh, I'm here with Alec McFarland to talk this one over. This was a little bit surprising and a little bit maybe even more delicate than some of the other ones that we've seen around the world, Alec, uh, because we saw the Hong Kong government step in for the first time and buy a stake, uh, really lead this rescue of uh, Cathay Pacific. Talk us through a little bit about kind of the structure of this and why it's so unusual. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it was quite unusual because, I mean, the Hong Kong government isn't famous for, for bailing out companies. Um, so that that was one of the reasons why this uh, this took people by surprise. And the other one is that obviously Cathay has some uh, very large shareholders, one being Swire Pacific, the other one being Air China and also Qatar Airways. So there was a kind of expectation that if there was any kind of bailout, it might be led by by one of those parties. But obviously, with those uh, those investors obviously kind of facing their own problems as well, you know, Air China and and Qatar Airways being being airlines that are sorting through their own coronavirus related ills, and Swire Pacific. I mean, they've you know one of their businesses uh, is, is real estate, which is kind of suffering at the moment. The other one is is marine services, which is obviously grappling with the plunging oil price. So I mean. From that perspective, this bailout wasn't a huge surprise, but at the same time, the Hong Kong government stepping in to do it was. And I think that it, just in terms of the structure, I mean, this is a, it's a $5 billion package and it comprises of a uh, quite a heavily discounted rights issue. And also the Hong Kong government will take up roughly $2.5 billion of, of preference shares and also provide a, a roughly $1 billion bridge loan to Cathay as well. So let's think through a little bit. I mean, the, the, what makes this so complex? I mean, because you mentioned the ownership structure to start with, right? And and so Swire Pacific is this conglomerate that's really a British holdover from Hong Kong's colonial days that still operates in the region here. Um, Air China is a state-owned carrier that owns about 30% of Cathay. And the fear was and, and has been for a while since the protests kick off in Hong Kong that, that Air China might come in and effectively seize Cathay Pacific. That fear has been put aside, but let's talk through the politics of this, which obviously are a pretty significant backdrop to the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think if you asked any any kind of like seasoned aviation investor right now, you know, is is this a great time for Air China to be taking over Cathay Pacific? The answer would be a unanimous no. So Air China, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a state owned enterprise, so it has the backing of Beijing. So potentially they could put the funds together. But just bear in mind, I mean, you know, the situation in China related to to the coronavirus is just recovering. I mean, airlines there are, are just recovering capacity. So, I mean, Air China is not in really in a position to be buying a struggling Cantonese airline. But, I mean, at the same time, if you're everything that's going on in, in Hong Kong in terms of the, the pro-democracy demonstrations, if you're a kind of protester or you, and you're not kind of too au fait with, with the way, you know, aviation stocks work, which, which I'm sure most of them aren't, then you're going to look at a situation like, uh, like Cathay Pacific and see that Air China is a, is a big shareholder and think that would be another... You know, Air China taking over Cathay Pacific would be another kind of almost kind of uh, sign that of, of Hong Kong sort of bowing to Beijing almost. So, I mean, the deal that was announced uh, this week as part of the deal, Swire Pacific, the, the parent company with a 45 percent stake, which will be diluted as part of this deal, but would, will still be the biggest share. They have agreed to remain the controlling shareholder of Cathay, which has kind of eased some of those fears that Air China might be kind of waiting in the wings for any kind of takeover. 
Yeah, I mean, the symbolism, I think, alone of Air China taking control of Cathay Pacific would have been pretty significant, fresh on the heels, as we know, of this bigger discussion about China sort of moving to implement a security law in Hong Kong and sort of bypassing the legislature, or at least kind of pushing its way on the legislature. And, um, and, and you know, and, and this would have been sort of the corporate equivalent um, to a certain extent of that. And uh, as you said, this, this, it seems like this has allayed to some of the fears. I mean, you have some concerns about the Hong Kong government stepping. I mean, obviously, the, the bailout will be a relief to the thousands of employees, many of whom are in Hong Kong, pilots and others, to see the airline sort of given a bit of breathing room here. But there is also concerns that you raised about what does it mean for the Hong Kong government to be using money to, to rescue an airline that's, whose finances are not necessarily great to begin with. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, Cathay Pacific is heavily indebted even before this deal. They had over 10 billion US dollars of debt at the end of last year. And they've been losing, I think, $320 million-ish of, of cash a month since February. And all in all, I mean, like January to, to April, they lost over 500 million US dollars. So this is an airline in a lot of distress. And then you've got, before the pandemic took hold, even then, Cathay was 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 struggling because of the lack of people coming into Hong Kong as a direct result of the the violent anti-government demonstrations as well, which had already kind of plunged the, the territory into a recession. So the pandemic has plunged Hong Kong into an even deeper recession, meaning that I, I think the optics of of the Hong Kong government investing the, this kind of money in a in a struggling airline right now don't look fantastic. I mean, there's already a, a kind of undercurrent of just kind of discontent with the level of inequality in Hong Kong that, that's kind of happening as part of the protests. I mean, this is a this is a territory with, a, I think it was something like a 18 to 20% of the people live in poverty even before the protests and before the recession took hold. So I do think that the kind of optics of uh, investing this kind of money in a in a struggling, heavily indebted airline, especially when the the IATA, the the trade body, has forecast that international travel may not recover for another three years. I mean, it doesn't look from you know it doesn't look particularly great. I, I think there is going to be a a feeling among a lot of residents here that the Hong Kong government could have invested their money in or could have used their funds for 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 better use, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a shareholder, and as we know, you know, I think it's less than a fifth of the shares are, are sort of out in the open market because you have these three major, well, now four major sort of shareholders when you throw in the Hong Kong government. But, you know, I guess there's a fear that, you know, this may not be enough, right? I mean, so you, you have this possibility if, if, if things continue to be bad, you know, the passenger traffic is down over 90%, cargo traffic has also been down. But, uh, you know, that there, that this could be, you know, a difficult investment. But I, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to also just the significance of Cathay Pacific sort of as a flagship carrier in Hong Kong. I mean, it, it has an unusual, I don't know, I've, since I've been here, it has this unusual relationship with the city. I mean, it, because, because I guess as an employer, as, as it's, as, you know, the significance of it to the, to the island in general. I don't know what, what your thoughts about it and how that plays into the politically difficult conversation that goes on around it. Definitely. I mean, it is almost like an unofficial flag carrier, Cathay. It's a brand that um, has a lot of resonance in Hong Kong. And it, it is a kind of, in terms of like brands, it is a real crown jewel for 
for the people here as well. And Cathay and the Hong Kong government do have that on their side. I mean, I think that there is a feeling among Hong Kongers as well that, uh, you know, this is an important brand and, and it, it is important that it's maintained in its current state. And also Hong Kong is a is an important international aviation hub in, in Asia as well. So, yeah, there is a feeling that this is a brand worth bailing out. I was, I was reading a piece today in the South China Morning Post saying that the vote in the government was pretty much unanimous for this bailout, which speaks volumes for the perception of Cathay Pacific as a Hong Kong crown jewel. Yeah, definitely a very <laughs> complicated financial and political story. Thanks for talking us through that, Alec. Thank you, Jeff. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our Uber producer, Freddie Joyner in New York, Jeff, Alec, and Jamie Lowe in Hong Kong, and Amanda Gomez in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Be good and stay healthy.